0: Hi, this is Rootvidge here with Harish, Mahesh, and Raga, and welcome to the sixth episode of the podcast, which will consist of market news, portfolio theory, and due diligence and research on a stock that we have selected. Wait until the end to find out what stock we analyze. Mahesh, do you want to introduce the new format
1: for the podcast today? Yeah, for sure. From this point onward, we've decided that we wanted to switch up the flow of the podcast, uh, relying less on just pure educational content and uh, introducing more kind of recent market news, as well as picking due diligence on a particular stock each episode and going into depth as to what are, I guess, catalysts for that particular stock to move in a certain direction.
0: Yeah. All right. So um, I guess the top headlines, we'll just start off with those, right? Uh, so U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has announced a shift in how the Federal Reserve will view inflation, saying that it won't increase interest rates to respond to low unemployment levels. And also, it won't worry as much about low rates triggering a rise in prices. A review concluded that inflation could runs, temporarily run slightly over the Fed's 2% target if that is what is necessary to, to maintain the labor market strength. So basically, the take here is that um, Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve will not care if inflation rises now. And that was a concern for investors, but um, they believe that it's it's in the best interest of the people in the labor market and unemployment to uh, continue with the lenient interest rates just because that'll be more helpful during a time of a recession, right? I mean, that makes sense to everyone, I think.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah. And also this inflation won't be like as drastic as you think, given um it's just a little bit over two percent. It's not gonna be anything yeah. Like we've seen in countries with hyperinflation.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I I'd say that this mm-hmm. is um probably good news for the stock market, right? I'm I'm guessing this is driving them more towards a bullish direction because at first they were concerned about maybe the Fed will stop, you know, uh the current Ease, easing fiscal policy to uh, slow down interest rates, but rather, I mean, they're just saying that they don't mind if interest rates increase, and I guess that just confirms a lot of the bull's uh, suspicions. So I think this will lead to a you know a longer stretch of the bull market, and we did see that last week as the S&P 500 um, and Dow Jones continued to rise. So um, also, in other news, uh, the second quarter earnings for companies in the S&P 500 has dropped nearly 32% from the same period a year earlier. And this is the worst, the worst result uh, since the first quarter of 2009. So, um, but even, even after all of that, the S&P 500 is continue, continuing to rise. And um, it's focusing more on the V-shaped recovery dynamic rather than on the reality of the market, which is that um, earnings are not doing great. Uh, and it's relying on the assumption that you know all these companies, like 84% of the companies, are beating the analyst consensus. Um, And this is actually the highest figure since FactSet began tracking that metric in 2008. So what do you guys think? I mean, do the analyst expectations actually really matter that much about the market's performance, or should it be more directly correlated with um, the revenues?
3: It should be more directly correlated with the revenue. I think what we're seeing is due to the uh, jump in a lot of new investors who are using analyst ratings, we're seeing pumps in companies that really shouldn't be as high as they are. And we're seeing inflated stocks that could possibly lead to a bubble in the future. Yeah.
4: And I think the analysts are probably lowballing on the ratings as well, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, possibility. Yeah.
1: Just to get more people to exactly. buy.
4: Exactly, yeah. So, um, and then effective uh, Monday, August 31st,
0: recently, uh, you may have heard this already, three of the 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average Index are going to be replaced. So, um, the, the S&P at Dow Jones Index have recently announced that Salesforce, ticker CRM, will replace ExxonMobil, ticker ZOM, Um, Amgen will replace Pfizer, and Honeywell International will replace Raytheon. Um, A stock split by another Dow constituent, uh, Apple prompted the move. And yeah, so this actually is really interesting of a dynamic to understand. Uh, Here's my opinion on this, just a take. So uh, a lot of times money managers and like pension fund managers are required to invest within a certain index. And this will actually pull a lot of them out of the stocks that were previously in the Dow Jones, right? Because of the ETF requirements and um mutual fund requirements that like literally say that you're only allowed to invest in the Dow. So um I think this will drive up even more on tech prices because like Salesforce got introduced and um ExxonMobil and a lot of those older style companies like Raytheon, uh Pfizer obviously, they're 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 a lot more uh legacy style companies and I, I guess if you pull out institutional investors out of them, do you think, like, the value in them is being destroyed now?
1: Um, I mean... Uh, I guess the interest is, but the value is...
3: Okay, yeah, taking them out does um, make it a disincentive to go invest in these companies, but I think also these companies are a bit old and we need to um, let these companies move out of the doubt to give way to newer companies like Salesforce that's the, that are doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, It's just a changing market.
0: Yeah. And I think Honeywell only had to replace Raytheon at its current state because of the United Technologies merger. So that's not because Raytheon isn't like technologically advanced. It's just um, because of the merger, I think it hurt Raytheon's financials a lot. And that's what ended up prompting the move to the Dow I mean, uh, ExxonMobil
5: used to be one of the biggest companies in the United States. And, you know, that just shows uh, how much the market can change over a short period of time.
2: Yeah,
4: for sure. And um, it's, the funnier yeah. part is that Apple, the, the split that Apple
0: did actually prompted the move for Dow Jones. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, speaking of the split, Apple recently did a four-for-one share split, which made its shares more affordable to investors who don't have access to fractionals. Um, and there's, there are still, uh, unbelievably, a few brokerages that do not offer fractional shares. So um, this, this introduced
1: a lot more liquidity into Apple um, this week. Also, um, just going back quickly to stocks being added to the Dow Jones, Alibaba actually, uh, as of September seventh, will be added to the Hang Seng, which is the like the Hong Kong Dow Jones, if you will. So that that's you can see a lot of sort of tech companies, big big tech companies being put into Dow Jones and replacing a lot of these legacy companies. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, I mean, and you can just see yeah. how expensive they're getting, right? You can see the hype because they need to do splits yeah, for investors yeah. to be able to afford them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see that and. Uh, Tesla's five-for-one stock split also prompted a lot of liquidity. Um, but again, it, it continued to decline, actually, the next few weeks because Elon Musk decided it was a good time to sell off a good amount of shares. So, yeah, uh, I mean, do, do you think that uh, other tech companies are going
4: to take advantage of these high prices and eventually start selling off? Like, I heard Tim Cook sold off a good amount of his Apple shares. Um, yeah, the higher
3: and higher these stock um, prices go, uh, the more worried these tech CEOs are going to be, they're going to want to seal in the deal that they get, which is really good right now. Um, and it might go up a lot more, but that's why they still have a lot of their owning.
2: I mean, their, I think uh, um, a lot of companies, a
5: company. lot of tech mm-hmm. companies already do this. Like, uh, I think Jeff Bezos he, he sells off like uh one billion dollars, uh, one billion dollars of worth of Amazon stock per year to fund uh, other stuff. So, I mean. Yeah, uh, as the moves become more common, uh, definitely we're gonna see more stock
2: sell-offs. Right. Yeah. Um. And in other news, uh, about
0: outside of the stock market, um, Hurricane Laura recently hit the Texas coast and Louisiana, uh, which causes widespread, obviously, you know, damage and destruction to infrastructure, and uh, I, I believe that you know because of the homes being destroyed and already the low supply in lumber, that'll probably cause an increase in lumber prices. And um, usually, traditionally, these hurricanes cause a lot of price increases for stocks like um, Home Depot and Lowe's because people need to, you know, go back and fix their own houses, right? So I'd say be on the lookout for stocks um, that closely trace lumber futures because
1: I I believe, you know, they should be rising currently with hurricane season coming up. Yeah. Not just lumber, but I think commodities in general. With lumber and other building materials
4: especially. Yeah. But yeah, they'll be in higher demand after a hurricane. Yeah, right. So, and then also, you know, you've probably been hearing about the TikTok merger.
0: Um, Microsoft is currently in plans, along with Walmart, to, to buy social media company TikTok from ByteDance. And um, if the acquisition is successful... Then it could mean you know big uh, jumps in share prices for Microsoft and Walmart purely based off of the hype of TikTok. But um, I personally believe that a lot of like the the hype might not be real because a lot of these social media platforms come and go. Like you know uh, I'm not sure if any of you remember Vine, but it was a very similar concept, right?
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah, but also beyond that, I think they're gonna run into some problems. I think I recently read that for um, ByteDance to sell TikTok, they need actually get um, approval from the Chinese government because they're sold off an entire company I uh, to a foreign think, entity.
5: Uh, personally, from my viewpoint, I don't think uh, that acquisition is going to happen just because of the strict rules of the Chinese government, but you never know.
4: Well, I mean, even if it does, I think it's not as big
0: of a deal as the market is making it seem. And um, yeah, I guess it's just another place where the market is being irrational because and i'm not i'm not you know traditionally a person to be that skeptical of efficient markets but i just feel like the acquisition for microsoft wouldn't even integrate that well with it like maybe facebook it would but um i, I don't think yeah facebook
3: already owns a lot of dominant social media sites exactly um i i don't see tiktok replacing any dominant social media sites in the near future like instagram or facebook yeah. which have been pretty established over like the past decade right and
0: people think like, like you know it is a new platform that's cool for younger generations because of the short video formatting which is better for their short attention spans but um i i just don't think it could last because vine had almost a very similar platform as well with the seven second video loops but um i'm not sure like if this is a good long-term play for microsoft or even walmart
3: and even instagram launched a new feature which is literally just Vine uh, or um tiktok they called it instagram reels yeah. it's the same yeah, thing that's and the main thing instagram already has a lot of users so. It's gonna be easier for them to retain their users. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and Facebook. I think the a, reason for Vine's decline. Facebook released a similar app, right? Was the same um, thing. Lasso, I believe. That was another
4: thing that they tried, and they couldn't replace TikTok. But um, I, I believe it, it would have been better maybe for Facebook to buy TikTok, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: So um, let's just move on from the news though, and jump into today's lesson on portfolios,
0: portfolio management. So a lot of the fundamentals of portfolio management are actually based on modern portfolio theory, which was created by economist Harry Markowitz, and uh, he actually won a Nobel Prize for this, um, the Markowitz Efficient Frontier. And this basically just provides uh, mathematical proofs as to why diversification is useful, right? You're always told to diversify your portfolio, but you never really like understand why exactly. And um, this gives you sort of a more um, in-depth reason for why it mathematically is feasible, and uh, it's it's actually a very sound theory to diversify your portfolio. Um, it provides the profound idea that an asset's returns and risk should not be evaluated as per the asset alone, but for how the returns and risk contribute to your entire portfolio. So I think that's actually a really you know good musing um, for you to think about as an investor, rather than just buying x amount of shares because you like the company. You should wonder. How does it go along with the rest of my portfolio? And um, yeah, yeah, so all, all it's really saying is that an investor can reduce the idiosyncratic risk associated with a security by owning multiple stocks um, that are not you know, perfectly positively correlated. And Markowitz actually made this uh, frontier, which is this like sideways parabola almost. And um, it, can, it can give you the, uh, the best generated return for the least amount of risk. And there exists a portfolio on the tangent line of the sideways parabola that'll optimize your portfolio for the amount of risk that you're willing to take. So um, I think, Mahesh, if you want to mathematically go over like, how it works, that'd be great.
1: Yep. Yeah. So before we even get into the mathematics, just a couple things that I want to clear up. Uh, when, we, when we kind of refer to the efficient frontier, what we're referring to is this graph that, like Rubic said, is a sideways parabola. But why it actually is a sideways parabola is because you plot... um standard deviation or, I guess, variance on the x-axis. So, uh, how much risk you want to take, essentially. And on the y-axis, you would plot expected returns. So, of course, if you're taking less risk, generally, you'll get res- less returns, right? And if you if you take more risk, you'll get more returns. So you can see that kind of curve uh, starting to form. But uh, the way the math works out, it eventually ends up like a parabola once you plot out just thousands and thousands of assets on that graph. And so once you know how that uh, efficient frontier is formed, you can actually do a couple of calculations to optimize your portfolio based on that. So uh, let's just go with the basic example, right? Let's say I, I want to buy Apple and Exxon stock, but I don't know how much to buy, but I know that I want to hit a target return of, let's say 15%. And so now we have to calculate how much uh, to put in Apple and Exxon, right? What, what percentage of our portfolio? And, well, to state the obvious, of course, the total return would be the weight of Apple in the portfolio times the return of Apple plus the weight of Exxon times the return of Exxon. And you could either use an analyst to kind of generate that expected return or uh, use just the historical mean return on Apple and Exxon. Well, I think CAPM is the mathematically accepted formula, right? Yeah, right, So right. I'll, I'll talk about CAPM. Yeah.
0: Um, it just stands for the Capital Asset Pricing Model. And it basically weighs the portfolio returns for risk. So the expected return is equal to the risk free rate plus the beta, which is just the volatility measure times uh, the return on market minus the risk free rate. And that's just the expected return. So um, the beta is where the stock price actually like the stock itself factors in the beta for the individual stock. And that's calculated by getting the um, expected returns uh, on the from your investment. Minus the risk free rate over the expected returns for the market minus your risk free rate. And then that gives you like your risk adjusted rate, which is what you're supposed to use, not just an expected rate. Um, yeah. So all you do is multiply that beta times the market risk premium and then
4: you add the risk free rate. So uh, that gives you your sort of risk adjusted returns. And that, that's what you always want to look at. Mm-hmm. Either way, you're still using the
1: mean historical return to kind of gauge yeah. uh, how it would perform in the future, right? right. I mean, the, yeah. the beta is derived from the past. For sure. The- the market risk premium is yeah yeah yeah. Past, so yeah. you you get but it's it's more mathematically accurate because you're factoring in the re- risk-free exactly. rate as well. Yeah. As so the rate. risk the risk changes
0: yeah. um, the returns a lot, right? Because if the risk-free rates are uh, lower and um, that'll kind of affect the entire portfolio, right? If the risk-free rate is a lot lower and bond payments are lower, then it'll make uh, these stocks look a lot more attractive, which is why the Fed is reducing
4: like the uh, the yield that you're getting from the bonds, right? Right. So now that we know that the weight of Apple in the portfolio
1: times the return of Apple plus the weight of Exxon times the return of Exxon should equal 15%, which is what we wanted to achieve as a target, we also know that the weight of Apple in the portfolio plus the weight of Exxon equals 1, of course. So using both these equations, we could treat them as a system of equations and, you know, uh, substitute the weight of Exxon as, you know, 1 minus the weight of Apple. And then we could solve for the weight of Apple and then plug that in to 1 minus the weight of apple to solve for the weight of exon. And so that's how you would calculate the the portfolio weights that you wanted if you wanted to reach a target return. Now let's say we wanted to get uh, what our expected return would be if we had a certain amount of risk. Well there's actually a, a formula for variance which is that the portfolio variance squared is equal to the weight of apple squared times the variance of apple squared plus the weight of exon squared times the variance of exon squared plus 2 times the weight of Apple times the weight of Exxon times the covariance between Apple and Exxon. So it's a complicated formula but essentially it's giving you what's the total risk in your portfolio just going off of what the historical risk has been uh, from Apple and from Exxon and between the two. So in this case we know the covariance between uh, both of them as well as the variance of each each one independently. So using again that second equation the weight of Apple plus the weight of Exxon equals 1. We can, again, solve this equation like a simple system of equations, but you can see there's squares in these is this equation, right? And that's what actually results in the parabola that we see in the efficient frontier. So we're going to have two possible solutions, and, you know, you could tackle this any number of ways, but I guess you could use the uh, quadratic formula. So, you know, negative B plus or minus square root of B squared minus 4 is a- AC over 2A to solve for the weight of apple and the weight of axon.
0: Yeah. And uh And then Mayesh, yeah. do you do you think you could one one do you, quickly do you think you could give like a really basic summary, I guess, to as how investors should interpret this? Uh because yeah, obviously diversifying is good, right? But then like
4: what is the practical steps that they should take um to optimize their portfolio? Yeah, so if you
1: Alright, so if you if you already have assets, so you wanted to pick between a couple different stocks and you realize that, I don't know, you're your volatility for the target return that you wanted to achieve is just way too high for your personal risk preference. You could try adding in more assets and that would, I guess, it, it would have the potential to decrease the, the yeah. risk that you have because in that covariance right. formula, you would have more uncorrelated mm-hmm. assets and uh, I guess more diversifiable risk more edio- and less idiosyncratic exactly, risk. Exactly, right?
0: yeah. So um, the cap and returns will vary a lot, but I think the number one factor that you want to change um, – mm-hmm like when you're investing, right, is you just look at the beta and that's probably going to be like the sole factor that changes the cap M, right? Because the market risk premium and the risk free rate are constants. Right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, yeah, the risk free rate and market risk premium change, but it's going to be the same for every stock um, in that formula. The only thing that'll change is beta. So make sure that you're beta weighting your portfolio. That's like the number one thing, right? Um, and if you, if you do that, if you have multiple uncorrelated securities, right? So non-covaried securities, which you can calculate, and um, they have you know differences in beta, which it averages out to whatever beta that you prefer. Um, then then you're good, right? Uh, then you'll
4: have like the most diversified risk, and um, you'll have a reduced amount of risk in your portfolio that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, one last quick
1: application. So you could take this any number of ways, but let's say uh, for a simple case, someone wanted to minimize the risk in their portfolio. Well, we already know that this graph looks like a sideways parabola, right? So if anyone knows calculus. Uh, you could take the derivative of the the portfolio's variance with respect to the weight of Apple in this case, and you can set that equal to zero. And so in that case, you could be able to derive like the the absolute minimum of the weight of Apple that you would need in order to achieve uh, minimum risk. That's just a very high level overview. And so you yeah, could take this, you know, apply it to a lot of different things, right? You could make a formula for sharp ratio and optimize over that. Or you could, you know, this—it's it, applied in a lot of different scenarios. But yeah, that's a basic understanding. And of course, you don't have to know this math. I'm sure there's a calculator online to do this all for you. It's just kind of uh, fun to kind of make sense of how it actually
2: works and what's the the intuition behind it. Yep. And uh, I guess I'll quickly go over
1: what the Black-Litterman model is, just a high-level overview. So um, the problem with the technique that we, we previously discussed is it doesn't really factor in uh, any views that you have about a particular stock, right? What you're going off of is the beta of that stock in the past and the expected returns based on CAPM. So let's say you actually had a notion that a certain stock would go to a certain percent. Then you could use the Black litterman model to factor both that as well as a confidence for that prediction and uh, produce
2: a po- portfolio weightage. And there's a formula for that as well, but I won't go over it. All right. Okay, then I think we can go
3: start talking about our stock recommendation for this week. Yeah, well, it's
4: not really a recommendation, but rather we'll just be discussing
0: it because it's been in the news a lot recently, and I'm pretty sure, you know, if you've been following the market at all, you've been following this stock really closely. And um, the stock that we're going to be discussing is NVIDIA. So um, NVIDIA, Raghav, if you want to introduce, like, what they do and... um, uh, like what, you know, uh, why they're so attractive for the current climate of the market? Yeah, you can go so ahead and um, NVIDIA
5: why. is basically a tech company that's uh, headquartered at California, which focuses on uh, creating GPOs. Uh, those are graphics processing units, which produce and output the graphics on a computer, obviously. So many gamers and uh, gaming squads, it's basically entertainment, uh, use their GPUs as they're seen as uh, top of the line quad. Uh now recently Nvidia has gone outside the gaming spectrum and uh advanced to uh many softwares uh within gaming and outside of gaming such as RTX and GeForce Now uh which are which is a graphics enhancer and a gaming platform/system booster respectively <coughs> So uh recently they got into the cloud computing uh/network business networking business uh, when they acquired uh, Mellanox which is an Israeli software company which focuses on networking through ethernet. Um, this helped NVIDIA uh, expand to greater reaches which allows them to make products for uh, not just like gaming but for companies who need their uh, network slash web services.
4: So now that Raghav has given us a solid introduction to the company um, let's discuss a little bit about NVIDIA's financials.
0: So, for the six months ended period between July 28, 2019, and July 26, 2020, NVIDIA's revenues went from um, $4,800 million to um, $6,950 million. So, that in and of itself is a huge spike in revenue just in the matter of one year. And um, gross profits um, increased by almost 80% from uh, $2,837 million to $4,279 million. Um, operating expenses actually barely increased. Uh, research and development obviously increased because of NVIDIA's um, merger with Mellanox. And on top of that, their expansion into data science and AI. Um, net income per share has also increased uh, from one fifty-four at the same time in the prior year to uh, two forty-seven dollars as of July 26, 2020. Um, <clears throat> and on top of that, uh, net income has increased from nine hundred and forty seven million to one one thousand five hundred and thirty nine million so just for just for the matter of one year Nvidia has increased revenue like almost in an exponential fashion and um, if you look at their shares i mean they've pretty much followed that pattern right um, if you look at the same time in two thousand and nineteen uh you'll see that they were at around eh, one hundred and eighty dollars hundred seventy eight and just because the market has seen this level of growth as of now, Nvidia stock price is at uh, $573. So um, in the past year, it's actually increased 248%, which is uh, way more than revenues. But that's because the market is projecting this like, continued growth rate for um, the next few years at least, right? At least for the five, fi- next five or six years. And we'll jump into why because of their new innovations and um, movement away from just you know basic GPUs. Um, because then they wouldn't really even be set apart from AMD, which does a very similar thing. But their business model is entirely different. And I think the leadership is steering them in the right direction. So just for some fundamental analysis, currently the CEO has a 3.8% stake in NVIDIA, which is pretty high. Um, considering, you know, in the tech industry, there are CEOs out there who have almost no stake or like a very, uh, very tiny fractional stake. But um, the CEO has been really confident, I think, for uh, almost since conception of the company. And um, NVIDIA has gone on making these acquisitions left and right, but they've been able to integrate them pretty well. And uh, I think that this next upcoming acquisition that's um, possible of ARM is going to be like the biggest um, cherry on top for NVIDIA. So Mahesh, I think uh, if you want to discuss AI now, then uh, you can go ahead and talk about AI and Mellanox and how that merger um, affected NVIDIA's business model.
1: Yeah. So, most people know NVIDIA for their uh, graphics cards, of course. They're usually popular with gamers or, you know, for Bitcoin mining. But um, it turns out they're actually very good for AI and machine learning applications. And the reason for that is, I mean, both of these processes require a lot of matrix math. And GPUs are just really good at, you know, paralyzing tasks. And with their just large amount of cores, they're able to just do these uh, small, small calculations just really fast, and so um with the acquisition of Mellanox which is actually an Israeli chip maker and a chip maker company that has a major stake in the the data science, uh, sorry, the data center uh, field, they were able to expand their you know networking and were able to expand their footprint into more data centers, allowing them to grow their computing power and allow for more AI and machine learning applications. So even during the height of the pandemic, NVIDIA was using their technology to filter out, you know, options as to what molecules could be potentially affected by COVID-19 using these supercomputers, Uh, you know, running through simulations with their data centers to figure out the mechanics of the virus. And a lot of these little small, small projects that were using AI and machine learning, which were powered by these super large data centers and supercomputers, which couldn't be really, well, it could be possible without Mellanox, but wouldn't be the way they are right now. Yeah, so Mellanox. I think Mellanox and um, Mellanox, the merger was in terms of financials perspective,
0: right? It would reduce their R and D costs, right? Because they now they don't really have to outsource it anymore and it's all just done in house. Right, right. So I think that's really helpful for them yeah. as well. So uh, a lot of people are thinking like, you know, the, the merger was probably an expensive, you know, hit on their uh on their cash. But at the same time, I think in the long term, this has been great for their revenue growth, as I demonstrated earlier.
1: Mm-hmm revenue growth, and, you know, just research and development in the AI field. From all those little projects, uh, you know, in 2009, Google, the Google Brain team actually used uh, NVIDIA GPUs to create neural networks with speeds over 100 times faster than regular CPUs. So you can already see how GPUs have been, you know, really beneficial to data scientists going back as far as 2009. And uh, after that, you know, further expansion into deep learning with GPUs led to the creation of the AlexNet Image Classifier in 2012 which topped the current standards of that day in terms of image classification. And so we've been talking about GPUs for all of these tasks, right? But NVIDIA actually has their own line of what are called TPUs, which are tensor processing units. And these are basically even more specialized, you know, GPUs meant specifically for uh, machine learning applications and yep. they have that in addition to yeah Harish, you can go and, um, into that
3: what I like best about this is um where this can go so with the Metal, with the Mellanox acquisition Nvidia got a lot of um technology related to um network hardware which is going to help them with their virtualization products um such mm-hmm. as GeForce Now that's for gamers but there are also other projects that they're working on um they're doing GPU virtualization for AI um and workstations as in you can remote in um, and use their GPUs for their own project without buying one. So this will help them get better connections, uh, faster speeds, and a more seamless experience. And it'll make it cheaper, much cheaper for them since they actually own the company of Mellanox now. All
0: right. Yeah. Alright. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the biggest news for NVIDIA in terms of its um, growth is going to be the, the acquisition of ARM holdings. So um, if you don't know what ARM is, ARM is a designer of SOCs, Systems on Chips, and the ARM CPUs for uh, cellular and tablet devices, um, such as the iPad Pro and the new iPhone, um, they're especially known for their seamless touchscreen integration, and they provide intellectual property designs for manufacturers rather than just making the chips the same way that Intel does. They license their chip designs rather than selling them the way that you know Intel and AMD do. And um, a list of these ARM licensed chip designs are uh, Qualcomm Scorpion, uh, Crate and Creo using their Snapdragon series. And Falcor using their Centric series, so that's that covers a good amount of like um the phone market, right? The Qualcomm Snap Snapdragon, it's really popular. And then Apple has been using their architecture since March two thousand and eight. So uh, this is where really the kicker comes through. Um, Apple is going to be using ARM for MacBooks, and this news was announced just you know a few months ago that they're not going to be using Intel chips anymore um in their laptops or in the MacBooks uh because. Intel just it didn't integrate with Apple's systems well, right? And Apple usually, they don't like to license stuff to third parties as well. But um, yeah, they they have been using ARM's architecture so that they can build their own chips, which reduces their costs. And um, at the same time, the ARM chips have been way faster. So for example, um, there's an article that says that the iPad Pro is faster than a 2018 generation i5 MacBook Pro, uh, which is like a full-on laptop, right? uh versus this really compact device that's only meant for students or artists um it's it benchmarks around the same speed so that's actually like the real um the really crazy thing is that these ARM chips that are used in phones and iPads and uh, uh Apple Watches even these are going to be the ones that Apple's new architecture is going to be built on so i'd say that this is similar to when Apple moved from PowerPC to the x64 bit architecture and um this alone will probably signal a transition um in all of like all laptop companies going towards ARM licensed chips. So for example, Microsoft in the new Surface Pro um also uses an ARM based chip from Snapdragon. And I think the way that Nvidia could use this to their advantage is that um they'll literally like start making the CPUs for uh Microsoft, right? Because why would they license out um the the chip designs when they could just make the CPUs in-house, right? So I think that's what NVIDIA's like long term stretched out goal is gonna be. And I think that's gonna hurt uh Intel and especially AMD in the budget laptop space because of um Yeah and also Hey go ahead Arish.
3: And also going into why um ARM is better than the traditional Intel CPUs for Apple, um is mostly because Intel is and Intel and AMD they're both based on X86 CPU architecture, which does work. It currently has a little bit better performance, but that's when it's at high power consumption, which of course will not work for MacBooks, iPads and such. So then um, Apple initially had to just cut down on the power usage for these CPU components, but with ARM, which is a much more power-efficient system, they can feed the CPU much more power, resulting in um, what they estimate to be 50 to 100 times better performance. Hmm.
4: Yeah,
0: and that in and of itself, um, along with the lowered costs of developing chips in-house, even if NVIDIA doesn't continue to use the uh, ARM technology to make CPUs, um, just the licensing out of it to Apple for their next entire line of products is going to be good for them, right? Because if Apple usually, like, th- if they're kind of a pioneer, right, for technology. So if Apple is the first one that tends to move into ARM, then I believe that, you know, Microsoft is already starting to follow. But eventually, HP, Dell, all these other companies that make laptops um, will continue to use ARM architecture as well. And um, that that should be, like, I think the biggest game changer for NVIDIA. Um, along with the fact that Nvidia has b- been building up coffers of cash, uh, reducing their long term debt, um, ha- has had increasing gross profit margins almost uh, year on year for um, until, you know, unless it was a dot com bubble or 2008 recession. Um, I think Nvidia has the right financials to execute this. They have like the, you know, the best vision in the market. And on top of that, uh, they have allegiance from gamers and um, communities outside of just the normal uh,
1: CPU or smartphone user who you would normally consider to be the customer here. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to brought up that most people have probably forgotten about at this point is um, the Bitcoin mining space. It's uh, I mean, people have rented out like thousands of these NVIDIA GPUs or other types of GPUs and just put them in a giant room trying to mine Bitcoin. So that's another market where uh, NVIDIA would yeah, be Yeah, successful. for sure. But I guess the the hype has been dying down yeah, for crypto. Yeah, that too. I think I think but,
0: uh, crypto will be interesting, and in, well, seeing how GPUs uh, get into that space. But um, I I really like to see like Nvidia's expansion into the cloud space and um probably CPU space, right? I mean, uh Harish knows more about um Nvidia and their structure. Yeah. But Harish, do you think that they would be capable of expanding into the CPU space because they tried previously before with the Tegra chipset, and maybe you want to discuss that.
3: Yeah so the problem with the old Tegra chipset was that um, what NVIDIA manufactured uh, compromised on both power efficiency but also um, heat and also performance. But with this new ARM architecture they can make chips that are much more power efficient resulting in lower temperatures and better speeds. So this could possibly be a way for NVIDIA to get into uh, manufacturing CPUs for phones, laptops. And other smaller power efficient devices. But beyond their Tegra chips, um, NVIDIA also just released their new line of GPUs. Um, for now they released their RTX 3090, 3080, and 3070. Um, obviously incremental 3070 is the worst and 3090 is the best, but also, 3070 being the worst doesn't mean it's a bad GPU. The RTX 3070, which is their lowest end GPU, starts at $500, yet it beats their previous flagship Um, the 2080 Ti when used for ray tracing, which is a gaming feature, and it also comes in at $500 compared to the 2080 Ti's price of about $1,200. The RTX 3080, on the other hand, is twice as good as their previous line, Um, the 2080, and also comes in at a much lower cost. Um, The 3090 is better than their previous flagship, the 2080 Ti, by double, and also has 28 gigabytes of GDDR6 memory, which lines up with their Titan RTX cards, which were their high-end cards. They cost about twenty-five hundred dollars before, but the RTX 3090 um, has been announced only cost one thousand five hundred.
4: Yeah,
0: and Nvidia's you know uh, business model usually used to revolve around GPUs, but um, now with the Melanox acquisition, which was seven thousand one hundred and thirty-four million dollars. Uh it was uh I mean it was massive, right? And people didn't know really where this would go. But we can see now that the profits generated from NVIDIA are coming more from like uh data centers. So the revenue attributable to Mellanox um for the last report was approximately 14% of consolidated revenue. Um and that's that's actually a huge amount for any company. Imagine losing 14% of your revenue stream. And they say that this is directly attributable to Mellanox. But we're not even sure how much is created by the synergies of absorbing Mellanox itself, right? And um that's actually like where I think accounting and sort of finance knowledge would come in to help you understand the true value of Mellanox and how it's helped them like sort of grow so rapidly. Um that two hundred percent stock price increase within just a matter of one year isn't attributable purely to NVIDIA's GPU performance, but rather to I guess the the sheer growth and um the the uh, services that Mellanox provides, right, in reducing their costs, um, but not only that, but in increasing their innovation and revenue streams to to a diversified consumer base, right? And that's something that we're really missing out on. So the more diversified uh, and sort of uh, niche your consumer base is, it's better, right? And that may sound like a bit of an oxymoron, uh, saying that it's niche but it's also diversified. But Nvidia knows who they're targeting, and that's the great part. And what who they're targeting is a diversified base, right? They'll have data scientists using their GPUs, they'll have um, gamers using their GPUs, but then they'll have multiple people using their data centers as well. And um, because of that, I think Nvidia's like main growth uh, that you're gonna be seeing in the next few years will be attributable largely to, um, to the data centers, right? And uh, what do you guys think? I mean, is Nvidia more of a data
4: center company now than a GPU company? Or uh, at least will it be sometime in the future?
2: I think I mean, that's what they're based trying of the to revenue? transition to. As the market yeah. changes, um, they already saw a lot of
3: um, yeah. underwhelming performance with their last GPU release. So I think what they're trying to do now is switch more to cloud computing, because exactly. that's what a lot of people really want.
2: They don't want to right. physically Everything buy something. Everything is being something. digitized, right? So this is sort of a virtual revolution here. Um. Yeah. um and a subscription oh, yeah. based model might also work better for yeah, a lot of the people. the analysts rather than analysts a one time
0: card, based, which will so then they um, <laughs> anything that subscription yeah. based has been going up in the past few uh, yeah. months, and that that's uh that's gonna be the case for Nvidia soon. I think that would be a really great model for them to build off of, actually.
5: Uh, I think I think what Nvidia is trying to do is uh, they yeah, might be and, trying to do it all like uh, Jack of all trades type of thing with uh maybe like a Amazon for software. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know how that will play out, but, you know, software
2: is uh, an increasingly hot commodity these days. So Yeah. You know. Right. Yeah, and also given that GPUs are a really niche market, um, the only people that really need
3: um, powerful GPUs are going to be gamers, developers, and video editors. And that's not a lot of people. So NVIDIA also needs to target the mass consumers. That's Mm -hmm. why they're probably switching. This is all speculation, but they might be switching and starting to Mm do smartphone computer, CPU. And so far the revenues um, are the
0: revenue streams that they list on their financial statements. They list uh gaming as the number one uh, revenue stream um last year, July twenty eighth, two thousand and nineteen, uh where gaming generated two thousand three hundred and sixty eight million dollars in revenue and data centers generated about thirteen hundred million dollars in revenue. Now, data centers generate two thousand nine hundred million dollars in revenue and gaming re- generates 3000 um 100 million dollars in revenue right so now basically data center and gaming are on par data center so catching um, up, yeah. uh, revenues have increased like by more than double so more than 100% whereas gaming has increased by like a very very small fractional margin i mean i could calculate it out right now um 3000 over uh 2400 yeah and it's only increased by 25%, which is kind of, you know, underwhelming seeing NVIDIA's growth. So that that is actually, you know, the, the biggest um, revenue stream now for NVIDIA. And uh, by growth, that's what the analysts are factoring in. Um, obviously, Automotive is another place where NVIDIA serves um, their chips and OEM. So those two places are cool. But now imagine the expansion into mobile markets, right? Especially in these developing countries where... Mobile and laptop sales are the biggest sort of, you know, uh, tech commodities, right? I mean, I don't see people in developing
4: countries really buying GPUs as much, but CPUs, wow, those are going to be in demand.
2: Um. Yeah, I think mm. this has always been a really big market, yeah, exactly. right? The CPUs, the
0: software, the
3: virtualization. It's just that finally NVIDIA's found how exactly. Yeah, find it's out a very established to, uh, market. So get into there's that. There's a market. tried
0: and tested formula for it. It's actually gonna be a lot easier for NVIDIA to expand than most people think. Um especially because, you know, they've they have ventured out there before. Um but now since they have ARM under their arm, uh they have a lot more leverage, I guess, in that area as well, right?
5: Um so do you think uh I mean I think um ARM is yeah, like exactly. a mobile chip business. Do you think they'll be able to get into like the computer? Uh, what do you call yeah. it? Uh, computer, right? Uh, right. CPU business.
3: Yeah, yeah. CPUs. They for might sure. be able to get into computer chips as well. Um, right now, Nvidia and AMD do have a big lead with their X eighty six. Their CPU flagships have already been really established. But given that Nvidia is a big name in GPUs, if they went into CPUs, a lot of um, gamers, a lot of workstation um, right. users might be willing to venture
0: into that exactly. field. Yeah, so it's just a risk that NVIDIA to It's not that hesitate. risky, right, Raghav? I mean, we already talked about how ARM performance pretty much beats out Intel's uh, flagship processors in the laptop space. So I think if NVIDIA just, you know, um, puts a little bit of uh, elbow grease into it, like they did with data centers, uh, we've seen that they can adapt really quickly. And we've seen that the leadership is, you know, super committed. So I think as long as that stays, I'm not concerned
4: about NVIDIA expanding into the market.
5: Yeah, I mean, um, you mentioned the leadership. Uh, I think uh, the leadership up there is really good. During the COVID pandemic, uh, they actually gave their workers raises instead of uh, uh, laying off so they could be more productive. And you obviously saw how the result played out in their company Mm -hmm. and uh, stock Mm -hmm. price.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Raghav. Um, If a company is able to sustain that, then you know that they have enough confidence in themselves to create more growth, right? So um, yeah, and even though some people might see that as unnecessarily, you know, spending more money
4: where they could have cut costs, I see that as more of a commitment to the company's vision rather
2: than, you know, uh, a place where they'd forgot to cut costs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And on top
4: of that, NVIDIA's liabilities, they're not that huge. Um, in terms of like their short-term assets,
0: they far outweigh their short-term liabilities and uh their long term assets are obviously financed by long term debt uh just because of you know the company structure from early on but i think that you know financially they're pretty sound and the growth prospect here is like undeniable so i would probably like set a random just to put an arbitrary target price on it i i think that
4: nvidia could hit 1000 by this time next year if if they didn't
2: do a split <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I think that's pretty realistic. And mm-hmm. um, also,
3: the market space that they're venturing to is huge. There's like big potential exactly. they if they work it yeah. out the right way.
1: A lot of you know big name cloud mm-hmm. providers already use their technology. You know, AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, exactly. Oracle. Yep, the sky's the it's limit. Only like up. So from um, here.
0: we hope you enjoyed this in-depth discussion on Nvidia, which is you know one of our favorite companies. And uh, we'll we'll probably go in depth on another company of either. Uh, your choice soon and um, we'll cover more DD obviously in the following episodes so I hope this made you want to listen more um, none of this is investment advice by the way it's all just our opinion and uh, sort of an examination an academic review if you will of uh, company structure so if you enjoyed this please let us know
4: um, please give us feedback at our uh, email address Mahesh you want to plug that
2: yeah the lost, it street, is, podcast um, at the lost yep. street podcast at gmail.com so if you,
1: yep so if you want to send us any inquiries or suggestions yeah you're free to i think for the next episode we'll be posting polls for things like what kinds of topics you want to see being us educating on you know what kinds of companies do we want to do dd's
2: on and stuff yep. like that so be All sure right. to uh, participate uh, thanks for listening